0: Before we start, I uh, was just thinking through some of the things that we've been uh, reading and singing in the service today, actually even before uh, we got to the service, uh, reflecting on the passage that J.T. read in, in Romans 8, uh, that we don't always know how to pray as we should, but the spirit um, himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for word, with, uh, with groanings too deep for words. Uh, He prays according to the will of God. Just a reminder that, um, that we are told, commanded, directed to pray according to God's will. But how often it is that we don't actually know how to do that. And when we don't know how to pray according to God's will, God gives what he commands in the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit prays for us. And so his prayer counts as our prayer. And the prayer, according to God's will, is offered up. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we were talking about the the nature of genuine faith, of the, the danger that comes with the temptation from our enemy to cause us to shrink back or to pull away when affliction and when hardship comes. And that Paul views the Christian life not as a momentary decision entering in, but a lifetime following of Christ union with Christ, such that if at any point in time a professed disciple falls away from the Lord and ceases to follow him, Paul says, it would be as if all my labor was in vain. Persevering faith is what God calls his people to. And God, in his goodness, gives endurance so that we will persevere. So when we come to to James chapter one today, what I want to encourage you with before we begin is that James is uh, starting around, say, uh, verse 19 or following, has, has gotten more and more specific about the way that the Word takes root in the hearts and minds of God's people, the way it begins to work its way in and through and out of our lives. And in the couple verses that we have for this morning, he gets very specific in terms of what this work of God's Word ought to look like. All right. My encouragement to you, if you are one of God's children, is that you may come to a passage like this and find that in many ways, you fall far short of the life that God calls you to. The absolute worst thing that you could do is to be discouraged to the point of despair and just throw your hands up and say, well, I'll just never get there. Don't do that. If God has commanded you to an act of obedience, he will give you the ability to obey. If God calls you to confess and repent of your sin, God will even give you the sorrow that leads to repentance. Repentance. So if that's you and you hear some of the descriptions that are given in these last few verses, verses 26 and 27 of James 1, and you hear it as discouragement, this ought not be discouragement from you. Perhaps it's a wake-up call, yes, by all means, but know that the God who calls you to live in perfection, as we find it in Christ, is the one who provides for all of your needs. And if you're here and you don't know that God is your Father, you have not come to faith in Christ, you don't know Him as your Lord and Savior, you need to know that no matter how much you may try to do what is described in these verses, you will never do it in a way outside of Christ that the Father finds pleasing. You can't earn His favor. You can't work up enough good things in order to get God to love you. That love, that favor is given to you as a gift, and everything that flows from that is just a response to what God has already done for us. So James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Before we read, let me try to set the context. Basically, after saying in verse 18 that in the exercise of His will, God's will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. The word is what brings us into new life as the Spirit works through the word to raise dead men and women. Then there's sort of a a progression that we find in the following verses starting at verse 19. So it's not merely that by God's word we are awakened, but it's by God's word that we are actually sustained in this life that He gives us. Those who have received the word implanted to give them new life are those who continue to feed on it. They continue to hear and be receptive to God's word. The next step in that process is for James to say more specifically or more clearly, and what it means to truly receive God's word and to be living on it and feeding on it is nothing less than to actually do what the word directs you to do. If you hear God speaking through His Word, but you turn a deaf ear to it, if you don't respond to it, then you truly have not received God's Word. And then the verses that we have here this this morning in verses 26 and 27 go one step further and say, Now, if you have been born again by God's Word, if you are receiving it daily and being nourished and fed on it, if you are putting God's Word into practice as you find it, and as it speaks to you, here is what, in concrete ways, concrete examples, here is what doing the Word will actually look like. So James 1, 26 and 27, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is God's word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, because you have commanded your people to hear and to do your word, we ask now that you would give what you command that you would give us receptive hearts, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would make us humble and eager and filled with joy at the thought that we can live for you in a way in which we honor you and find satisfaction and contentment in you. Make us more like Christ, the perfect Son, who perfectly obeyed with joy. We ask this for his sake. Amen. So, are you religious? You ever been asked that question? Are you one of those religious people? We have a son who is uh, in his first year in the army. Typically, it seems like when uh, someone asks something like where he is, sort of on the spiritual spectrum, if you were to say that he's a Christian, or it sometimes happens like this, so we're told, when they hear that his father is a pastor, oh, are you religious? How would you answer that question? Are you religious? James in verses 26 and 27 seems to be telling us that we ought to answer that question in the affirmative. If someone asks you, are you religious? You should say, yes, I am. Now, of course, words mean things, and so it's helpful sometimes to define terms. So maybe before you say something like, before you answer that question, are you religious? Yes, I'm religious. Maybe you could ask a question like, well, what do you mean by that? That would would be fine, that would be perfectly reasonable. But there there is something to be said for the fact that the language that's used here in these verses is the language of religion and religious. So what James does in these two verses, number one, if we were just to use his language, James holds out in no uncertain terms that God's people are religious. That's number one. That's the first thing that we wanna consider. God's people are religious. And then, number two, in these verses, he wants to tell us now, here is the kind of religion that our Father is pleased by. This is the kind of religion that he approves of, suggesting that there are different kinds of religions or different ways that you can be religious, not all of which the Lord finds pleasing. So, number one, God's people are religious. Let's start just by trying to define terms. What is meant? by the statement, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, and then in verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. We don't really need to over, uh, overcomplicate things by religion. What seems to be implied here, what the, the meaning of that word is, is it's a reference to the idea that whoever the religious person is, it's that they do acts of devotion for the God that they, that they serve. They're, they're, we use words like they're devout. They devote themselves to the Lord in their time, and their energy, and their resources. They, they devote themselves to the service of God. There are things that they actually do that make it evident that they think of and worship this God. In a, in a very simple way, That we might say it something like this. I, I love the way that, that one person articulated it. It's just that religion is a comprehensive word for the specific ways in which a heart relationship to God is expressed in our lives. That's what religion is. That's what it means to be religious. It means that your heart expression works its way out in ways that can be seen and heard. Now, all that being said, in that sense then, God's people are religious, and we ought not to be embarrassed to say that we are a religious people. If by that we mean we are religious in the sense that we don't just believe in God, but that we serve him, that we devote our time and our energy and our efforts to Him, that our our belief, our trust in Him actually changes the way that we live, then yes, by all means, we are religious. But there are a couple ways that this sort of terminology is used that we, we kind of shy away from, that probably is good to mention so that we clarify a little bit further what we do and what we don't mean, or for the sake of being able to listen and maybe discern and detect, ways that this kind of lingo is used in unhelpful ways so that we can know when there's an opportunity for us to bear witness to what genuine saving faith is, is like. So, for example, you may have heard someone say, either someone you know personally or you've heard it in media or in print or some such thing, that I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. You ever heard that? Yes? I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. More often than not, and, and maybe your experience is different than mine, I don't know that I've ever heard a genuine Christian use that kind of language. Usually, that kind of lingo, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, is used by people who want to say, yes, I believe that there's a God who exists. I'm not willing to deny that. I think that there's a higher power out there somewhere, but... I'm not religious, so while I may admit that there is a higher power out there, I'm going to live under my own power. It's basically a soft way to say, I don't have anything to do with God, even though He exists. But once again, typically, I don't think that's the kind of way that religion is used in a lot of the conversations that we have. This is the one that tends to come out more often than not even among people who are are serious in their their walk with the Lord. You'll hear something like Christianity or the Christian faith. Christianity is not a religion, it's a... There it is. It's a relationship. You heard that before, right? Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Now, if by that you mean that Christianity is not about what you can do to earn your good standing before God. That's right. If by that you mean that Christianity is not merely a religion, it's a relationship, which means that you must be born again, you must be in union with Christ, you must know the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, you must be reconciled to God and adopted into his family. If that's what you mean by Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, then that's right. All of those things are right. But in that respect, though, and especially in light of what we have here in these verses, it might be better to say Christianity is not only a religion, it's a relationship. Right, because oftentimes what can happen with, with language like that, and this is where language that we assume when we're all on the same page can begin to chip away at foundations. You can use that language and one person can, can mean one thing. Right, it's not merely about what we do, but, but who we know. Right? New birth, regeneration. One person can use that. Another person can use that same language, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, as a way to say that my faith is personal and private. It is subjective. It is self-determined and self-defined. Right? If that's what you mean by Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, that's wrong. We don't get to define what Christianity is. That has been done for us. We don't get to determine or assert what our relationship with the Lord will look like. God has told us what it will look like. So I'm saying all this to say, be very, very careful when this kind of language is used that you make sure that everyone knows what it is that they're talking about and that certain little subtle errors are not being brought in, that begins to water down or undermine the faith. For example, if someone came to me and said, Mary, are you a husband? And I said, yes, I am. Are you a devoted husband, right? Are you devout? And I said, well, yes, I am. And so the question then becomes, well, what do you do for your wife? What do I do for my wife? My wife doesn't need me to do anything for her. She's very self-assured, very accomplished. What what do you mean do for her? I don't need to do anything for her. Well, okay, Mary. well, what do you do with your wife? I mean, she does her thing, I do my thing, right? There's not, there's not a lot that we do together. We, you know, I, I have my hobby, she has hers. What do you talk about with your wife? Uh, we, don't, we don't really have much to talk about. Right, and at a certain point when, when that starts to come through, you, you start to look at me and you ask, are you sure that you're married? Do you know what it means to be a devoted husband? And if my response to you would be, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. You need to understand, marriage is not about rules, it's about relationship. Do you hear how that just falls flat? Almost instinctively, we recognize the error in that when it comes to our interpersonal relationships. But it's when we want to find an easy way out from the call and the commands of Christ that we all of a sudden begin to put up subjective defenses and nebulous, ambiguous ways to describe and define the Christian life, and James just will not have it. The Lord, speaking through James, will not have that. The fact of the matter is, new life in Christ will find expression. It will take a shape and a form. That's what this passage and the verses preceding are driving at. If you claim to be a son or a daughter of God, if you call God your Father, But you can't say, no one can say in any way imaginable, like father, like son, big questions need to be asked. If you say that you have been grafted into Christ, that you have Christ's life by His Spirit working in you and through you, and yet nothing that you say or do or think or feel in any way resembles Christ's likeness, That is a major warning sign. Anyone who has been born of God by the power of his word will find the word of God to be nourishing. They will find it delightful they will grow in their appetite and in their taste for it. And as they feed on God's Word, that Word will begin to to take root in their lives. It will take shape, and it will give them a very distinct appearance in the way that they live. It cannot be otherwise. So are we religious people? Yes. We are religious people in the sense that We are those who want to increasingly devote ourselves to the God who saved us. We want to give ourselves over to the work of the Spirit so that in obedience to what we see revealed in His Word, our lives are looking more and more like the life of Christ in every way. In that sense, yes, we are religious people and we ought not to apologize. If that makes us look weird, good, all the better. The world needs a little bit of weirdness to gawk at. That's rooted in Christ. Number two then, it's not merely that we're devoted to the Lord in some sort of a general way, but there are actually substantive, specific, particular ways in which we devote ourselves to God, in which our faith takes expression and takes shape. James gives us three in this passage. Now, Please don't misunderstand. This is not an exhaustive list. So if you find that the things that that are mentioned here, the three things that characterize true religion, characterize your life, praise the Lord. Keep moving in that direction. Keep growing and maturing. But know that there are any number of other commands that you could work into a passage like this and say... Well, this is also what it means to be devoted to the Lord. Three things that James says that pertain to true religion. One, in verse 26, is true religion of someone who is truly religious as someone who bridles his tongue. That is, he brings his speech under control. Number two and three are in verse 27. The second example is visiting orphans and widows in their distress. And number three, keeping oneself unstained from the world. By the way, do you notice in that, and I'm not sure how your version, I'm reading from New American Standard, so yours might be a little bit different in the verbiage, but do you notice that that those three things are all action words? Someone who is religious bridles, controls their tongue, they do something about their speech. They visit orphans and widows in their distress. They actually go and do things in service for them, and they keep or they guard themselves against the stains, the contamination, the impurities of this world. Devoted to the Lord will take on action. It will take on shape and form. Now, if you hold your place here in chapter one and you look over to chapter three, in chapter three, for 12 verses, we're going to get a a discourse on the importance of controlling the tongue. So I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on bridling the tongue right now. We'll save that for when we get to chapter three, but let me just simply say this though. It's always interesting to ask, why would these things be the things that James highlights? It could be that these are particular areas of weakness for the people that James is writing to. And so he's addressing the issues that they most need to hear. That's, that's possible. Or it could just be that he picks these things in a somewhat random way. You know, he could have cho- chosen three other things and put them in. But that these three things are important because of what they signify or what they represent. When it comes to the tongue, it ought to be said, or we ought to be reminded of what Jesus himself says, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If someone is truly devoted to the Lord, if they have come into new life that Christ offers, that means that their heart is in the process of being worked on and changed. That means that a lot of the garbage and the filth and the impulses that used to course through their their heart are being removed and pulled away, which means that they're finding less and less resources to draw on to say filthy, evil, or intemperate things. So the notion that we could say something unkind or rude or offensive and then say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that, that's not who I really am. No, not according to Jesus. If you say something that embarrasses you, no matter how embarrassed or ashamed you may be of what you said, Jesus says the reason that you said it to begin with is because that garbage lurked in your heart. So if you claim to have been born again by the word of God and yet nothing has changed in the way that you speak, that brings questions into whether or not there is any change going on in your heart, do you see? Therefore pure and undefiled religion, those people who truly are devoted to the Lord are finding that as their hearts are being cleansed and purified, so is their speech. we ought to expect as God's people a certain kind of language or find certain ways of speaking or joking or talking to one another as being beyond the pale. But the second and the third one are the ones that we want to spend most of our time on this morning. So the second one Pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. I don't know, I don't think that we have any genuine orphans in our congregation. We do have widows. As a matter of fact, please don't make me regret this. If you're a widow, would you mind just standing where you are right now? Okay, and if you're not a widow, you need to look around right now and see the widows that are in this congregation. Some up in the balcony as well, and others who are not able to gather with us for various reasons. Thank you. You can sit down. All right, the reason that I do that is because as, as, you, as we're hearing what the Lord says about orphans and widows, it's good for us to have faces to go with this. This is not abstract thinking or Christianity. This is specific. This means something to people that we call sisters in Christ. Why, why orphans and widows? Why, did, why does he single widows and orphans out as the ones who ought to receive attention and care? Well, number one, it's because care of orphans and widows reflects the heart and the mind of God. That's, what's on, that's who is on God's heart and God's mind. You don't need to turn here. Let me just walk you through some passages. You just sit and listen and let this fall on you. Psalm 68:5, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in His holy habitation. In Exodus 22, see if this does not put the fear of the Lord in you. Exodus 22, 22 through 24, the Lord says, You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. You think the Lord isn't serious about the way that His people treat widows and orphans? Stated positively later in Deuteronomy, He says this. In Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29, "...at the end of every third year you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien... The orphan and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. You want to be blessed in your work, in your farming, in your herding? When you have an opportunity to use the fruit of your labor to minister to an orphan or to a widow, you ought to be doing that, supporting them. Those people are near to God's heart. And the Lord smiles on that and blesses in return. In John 19, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, what is one of the last things that he does? He sees to it that his widowed mother is going to be cared for. While... He is bearing the sin of God's people. He is looking after his widowed mother. In Acts chapter 6, if we understand this passage correctly, the whole reason that, de- that the deacon office was instituted in the church was because there was a need with widows receiving an equal measure of food and support. Under God's guidance, the church created an office of authority to be able to look after and to minister to widows. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul talks about the way that the church ought to distinguish between younger widows and older widows so that they can be cared for appropriately. All of this is to say, it is not surprising then that James would bring up the care of orphans and widows because over and over again in Scripture, God shows special attention and care to the people who are valuable and weak in the body. The other reason that we could say that God does this, that we're told that we ought to be paying attention to the weak and to the helpless, is because it is a clear picture and imitation of the gospel. That's what God has done for us. We are the helpless ones. We are the weak ones. We are the ones who have no resources, no riches, no way to secure or provide for ourselves, to defend ourselves from the onslaught of our enemy or through the sin of this world. And God in His mercy and grace comes to help helpless people. Romans 5, verse 6, While we... All of us were still helpless at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. If you can't find it in your heart, or if you can't find motivation who extend some measure of grace and sensitivity, even more than sensitivity by the way that you speak and the way that you pray, service to people who have nothing to give you in return, let me challenge you by saying, I don't know if you understand Christianity the way that you should. This faith that we have is a faith for the helpless. God saved you and me, not because there was anything that we could give him in return, but simply because he was merciful to us. How can we, in turn, not extend a measure of that same mercy to those that are in our midst? Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This is, this is exhortation, this is encouragement, this is appeal, this is not rebuke. This church in so many ways looks to serve and take care of the widows in our midst, particularly those who are most in need. I am thankful for that. I'm thankful for the time and attention that Andy Johnson gives every week, not only to making calls, but to actually making in-person visits. I'm thankful for the way that deacons minister to widows by doing things like mowing grass. You ever heard of the Mow Bros? Widow ministry, mowing grass, I love it. The fact that scattered through this sanctuary right now there are people who sponsor widows and widowers in our church to make sure that if there is a church function they have a ride or that they're kept in contact with. All of those things, genuine demonstrations of life in Christ that is given to us specifically in the word to say, if you want to know what real life in Christ looks like, it looks like this. Thank you, Edgewood. the third thing that is mentioned here is after bridling the tongue after visiting orphans and widows in their distress and by the way i think that implies not just merely dropping in on them but visiting them in their distress to see how you can help them right just to clarify the third thing that's mentioned here about what real devotion, real meaningful devotion to the Lord looks like is keeping yourself unstained by the world. One of the things, one of the things that makes, that should give us confidence that the scriptures really are the word of God is that it offends everyone, right? everyone at some point in time is either offended or convicted by God's Word. In this case, what's interesting here is there are some people who find it very easy, maybe even somewhat natural, to be involved in mercy ministries, social action, right, cultural engagement types of things, getting out on the streets, into the neighborhoods, into the homes, But that's as far as their devotion to the Lord goes. They get back to the house, and in the privacy of their own home, once they're done with the mercy ministry out there, when they get back into the privacy of their own room or their own home, there's nothing that makes them any different from the rest of the world living outside. They watch and they listen to the same things. They set their minds on the same things they aspire for the same things, they desire all that the world is telling them to desire. Those people, in other words, who are devoted to the Lord, yes, are people who do work out their salvation by caring and serving others, but they are also people who in their devotion to the Lord devote themselves to holiness. If God says to his people, you shall be holy for I am holy. If Jesus says to his disciples, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anyone who is serious about their relationship with the Lord, about pleasing their Father, must be take holiness seriously." So it is good that we're here this morning, right? Even this is one of the public acts of devotion. When God calls His people to gather regularly and we do gather on a consistent basis, that's an act of devotion. That's good, that's right, we, we ought to be here. When God calls us to serve one another, particularly those who are weak and needy, and we do those things, whether it's by making a meal, or giving to help financially, or writing a card, all of those things are good and right. But is that where your devotion ends? When you walk out of this room and you get into the car and the door closes, what will you be then? Are you going to be a different person? Better yet, when the car takes you to wherever it is that you're going to go, will you be a different person than what you are right now when you get to the restaurant or when you get to the ball field? or when you're looking for a movie to stream on Netflix? You are gonna take holiness serious then or just when it's convenient for the show? As Jesus is praying for his disciples in John 17, he prays to his father and he says, sanctify them in your truth, your word, is truth. If we consider that Jesus is praying and asking that his Father would sanctify, would make his people holy by the Word of God, and that here in James we're being told that what it means to truly have life with God is to be born by the Word, to be nourished by the Word, to practice the word and to be shaped by the word so that even our moral, ethical stance is determined by the way we respond to the word. We ought to consider that one of the things that God is eager and desires for his people to be are people who in the privacy of their own thoughts look and sound more like Christ. That when we're in the privacy of our own homes, talking with our children, or our spouses, or with our roommates, or when we have the place to ourself, that we look like Jesus in his purity and in his holiness. Because the word that gives us life calls us forward to grow in holiness and sanctification. So are we religious people? are we religious people? Yes, we are religious people because we are people who want to be devoted to the Lord in the way that we control our tongues, in the way that we serve one another, and in the way that we devote even our minds and our hearts to purity and to holiness. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you and acknowledge that our righteousness is not anything that we create or not anything that we do, but our righteousness is what has been given to us through the obedience and the perfection, the purity of Jesus Christ. You have declared us right before you, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. But we also thank you that for everyone that you declare to be right, in their standing in relationship with you, that you also set about making them right in the way that they live. You sanctify us and purify us. You make our speech more pure. And our thoughts and our desires, you cleanse and you set right. So Father, would you give us the wisdom that we need to be able to strike a good and a healthy balance to know and to find our security in the righteousness of Christ and then as an expression of the new life that we have found through him by your spirit that we would desire nothing more than for our lives to become more and more conformed and shaped by that very righteousness so that we live out your word as we see it lived in the living word, your son, Jesus Christ. Father, command what you will and give what you command for your glory and our joy. Amen.